0: Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Alan Mueller, and today we talk about owning our whiteness, and my gosh, what a bold statement that sounds like it is. Me being a cisgender female, white female, able-bodied, Alan being a cisgender male, able-bodied, talk about privilege. And so it's about using that privilege to disrupt privilege. Alan's whole mission is using his white privilege to create and develop empathy. He has a TEDx talk called Doing the Math, How Do We Measure Privilege? His entire company, Adaptive Challenge Consulting, is about equity, diversity, inclusion, gender, all of these things. And let's just take a minute to like put our privilege in check, our social economic privilege, the color of our skin, our sexual orientation. And then also, are we opening our eyes to other perspective? Are we reading books by authors of different colors, of different sexual orientations and different perspectives? Are we watching movies? Are we hanging out and gathering in places where there's diversity? And so it really just Let's us take a look at where we are and how can we use our privilege to make this world a better place. This is an awesome topic. Alan is a little bit of a comedian, and so it's just fun, engaging. I really, really enjoy this conversation. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here, and please take a moment to give us a like, share, and subscribe. And let's just dive on in for today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hello. Good morning, Alan. How are you? Actually, it's not morning there. (laughs) How are you today?
1: I'm great. Great. A little bit of a time difference, but I am very good. Yeah. Well, thank
0: you so much for joining me today on the Connected Community Podcast. I'm so happy to be chatting with you.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. This is going to be a great conversation. Yeah.
0: So one of the things that you're passionate about is using your privilege, leveraging your privilege to help develop more empathy. And so I'd love to know a little bit about what that means to you.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so for your viewers listening that don't see me, I'm a white guy. Uh, And for the viewers uh, who do see me, do not adjust your screen. I am. I am white. Um, and so, you know, as a white man, who's also cisgender, and if if your audience is is unfamiliar with that term, it means that when I was born, the doctor was like, it's a boy, and they happened to guess right in my case. So good for them. Uh, but that's not the case for everybody. Um, I, I've lived in the US my entire life. I'm the child of I'm an immigrant, but I've lived here my whole life. And, you know, everything in the US is is very much built around my comfort and my convenience. Mm-hmm. And, you um, you know, um, even though I think that I- I'm appreciative of the progress we are making, uh, there's still so many unfulfilled promises. And so one of the questions is, how do I be white and be the best white person I can? How do I take things that are privileges I didn't earn and put them on the line for those who don't have that unearned privilege? How can I sort of use privilege to disrupt privilege, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um but it's a journey. It's, it's, there's no, there's no easy answer. I, it's not, I, I don't know that I could have a book about how to do this. It's, it's everyday little decisions. It's, um, am I reading books by, by black and Latine authors? Am I, um, listening to, to queer and trans voices when it's, you know, um, am I just, you know, listening to differently abled people and, and, in ways that can honor them? And am I absorbing that knowledge and that perspective and trying, trying to develop better understandings?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, uh, each time you try, you know, I, I'm never going to understand it. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't keep trying. And the keep yeah. the, the the ability and the willingness to keep trying, even though I know I will always fail is part of sort of what they call the growth mindset, right? It's, it's look, it, it's not, everything is about succeeding at the goal. I am never going to understand, for example, the life of a trans black woman. Right. I'm never going to really understand that life, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't spend mental energy reading work by people in that community and, and watching media that they've developed and, and just listening, you know?
0: Yeah. What initially sparked this interest and passion for you? Was there something that happened? Did a light bulb go on one day for you?
1: But, you know, I don't know. There there were a series of events. I mentioned I'm the child of an immigrant and um, uh, my father is from Germany and lost uh, a lot of family in World War II. And one thing I remember as a youth was he sort of tried to shield me from a lot of, of U.S. movies because in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, U.S. films, Germans were always the villains. And, and, of course, Germany, especially leading into the 70s, had a horrendous uh, history on, on human rights. Uh, but also my, my dad remembered a Germany that was about, you know, cuisine and culture and music and hospitality and things that weren't uh, yeah. the, the horrible parts. And said, you know, I want you to know a Germany before you know about all the ugliness or as you learn about the ugliness, I want you to learn about the other parts, too. Mm-hmm. And he was convinced that U.S. media was just showing the ugliness. And and I get it. I get it. But that little itty-bitty inkling made me think about media differently. And then when I went to college and was exposed to ideas about, well, how is the Black community portrayed in movies and TV? Yeah. What words are used? What words are used on the evening news to describe uh, a Black person who committed a crime that are different from the words that are used to describe a white person who committed a crime? Yeah. Um, And so I think that was part of it. And then another part of it was um, I was in a, a... uh, English class, my first year of college, and um, and I wish I could say that this was was a noble thing, but there was a, there was a, a young woman in my class who I you know I, I may have had a little bit of a crush on, her, who invited me to come watch uh, her choir sing at this uh, tree lighting event. It was near the holidays, and uh, it was the Black Student Association Gospel Choir, and they stood in the cold in December as as the university did this tree lighting, and they sang a cappella, and it was amazing. It was amazing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I approached the director and I said, I said, could, could I be a part of this? And he goes, sure. Yeah, sign up. It's a class, you know, we can join in the spring. And I did. And and I became kind of the white member of a 90 member mm-hmm.
0: Black uh-huh. Student Association
1: gospel choir. And, um, and that experience, uh, you know, and, and one other thing I'll mention my university uh, at the time we had uh, 2.5% of our population were students of color about 100 so we had 10,000 students yeah. 100, 190 of them were black or african american and yeah. i was in choir with 95 of those students That's so i crazy. sort of accidentally became the white guy yeah. that a lot of the black folks in the community knew yeah
0: and how was that received by that a cappella group so i mean
1: it was you know it was interesting because i i don't know if my presence was disruptive again i was invited in but I was invited in by a person or two. That doesn't mean necessarily that I had an invitation yeah. from the whole community. So it was a little bit of a risk on my part. And it was a little bit of a risk on those who invited me. Um, and, you know, I had to learn quickly the difference between appropriation and intercultural exchange. There's a big difference between cultural appropriation and intercultural exchange. And the difference is who has the power and who's doing the inviting. Those are the two big things. Mm-hmm. And. In time, we found that we had so much in common when it came to uh, our love of this music, um, our our various faith traditions that came together because it was a gospel choir. Right.
0: Um,
1: And then, you know, you go on the road and you're on a tour bus and you're traveling six hours with folks, you start bonding and forming relationships. And those relationships help stretch your mind and help stretch you, you know, and I had a – and at the time, um, sometimes I would pat myself on the back. Like I would be like, oh, I'm a white guy who – Twice a week is in a classroom with yeah. only only black people, so I get it. I get what it's like to be a minority. No, 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 no I do. I did not. Right. Um, but every once in a while, I would pat myself on the back for thinking that I was doing something, mm-hmm. and uh, and I learned from that and and grew from that. Um, and because it doesn't matter if I'm in a room, it doesn't matter if I work at a historically black college. If I'm in a room of of all Latino people or all black people, the power structure of the U.S. is still so 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 white. Right, Congress, Fortune 500 CEOs, university presidents—like the power structure is still so so white that mm-hmm. um, I don't want to trick myself into thinking that I really yeah. kind of get it because I I don't. Yeah.
0: And how did you notice the power struggle and that power playing in that acapella group? Uh,
1: I mean, so again, I was invited by a member to sort of come check them out. And then I spoke to the director, and the director invited me to come on in and sing. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it, there was, I think, my perception is there was a little bit of, uh, because that director had invited me, there was a little bit of wait and see yeah, uh, on, on behalf of that community. Uh, and then, two, you know, one of the questions is, can he sing? Is he going to mess things up? Like, like in other words, right. you know, there were other reasons that the group was there. But I also recognize now that at that university, all black spaces were very rare. And it's interesting because knowing what I know now, I might not have joined the choir. I might have chosen not to or um, found another way to support the choir that wasn't joining it, you know, um, because maybe that that was a, there was a sacredness. to, And there I think there were two white women in the choir. So, so there were okay. there were a few other white people, but I was the first white guy. Um, and so, you know, I, knowing what I know now, I don't know if it was more disruptive, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, but, but of course knowing what I know now wouldn't have happened without that experience too. So it's a conundrum. Sorry, I cut you off, but yeah, Yeah,
0: no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cause you want to honor the sanctity of that space that they have, that they don't really get to have spaces that are all inclusive. Yeah. And so it changes the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about your work and and what you're doing with your work because you're you know building emotional intelligence in other people's lives and educating and working with um you know gender and equity and diversity and inclusion and and um honoring you know all of the different um just navigating just a bunch of different paths for people and so and and opening people's eyes to that. So how do you go about doing that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well. So. Uh, My company, we, we we're a consulting group. And so we work with city governments and county governments and colleges and universities and K-12 systems and companies, uh, corporations, all kinds of groups Mm -hmm. um, on emotional intelligence on, on. um, And it's interesting if you took a poll 20 years ago of everybody across the country, what do you want in leaders? There's a certain list of qualities they want. And, and now very, very suddenly and very, very abruptly in the last 10 years, Empathy and intercultural competence have jumped onto the top of that list. Yeah. And part of this is thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement. Part of this is thanks to the Arab Spring internationally. Part of this is thanks to um other other movements that are about getting folks who've been historically and currently marginalized in front of the microphone. For for our group, though, one of the things that we do that's a little different is um sometimes people will ask us, can you come to an EDI workshop? And so, you know, depending on who they are, if it's a room full of my fellow white people, I'll just gleefully go in there and run it for them. But if it's a more diverse group, I pull in a few of my affiliates who might be black women or a black man or have other intersecting identities to so that we have authenticity and we have credibility in the room together. Um, And so but one of the things that's interesting is sometimes we're asked to do that, but sometimes we're just asked to do leadership training or communication training, and we bring in conversations about identity through that because it shouldn't always be a separate unit. That's that's one of the worst things we do is decide that, oh, we're going to do a five-day workshop, and and day three, we're going to talk about diversity, and then we're just going to move on. And we've we've checked the box that we've talked about diversity. Well, or what if when you're talking about communication, when you're talking about professionalism, you can deconstruct it a little bit and say, hey, so, Who's been in charge of what counts as professional? Spoiler alert? It's been white men. yeah right and And then can we deconstruct that? Can we interrogate that? Can we kind of poke some holes in it and go, well, what why are these professional standards this way? Communication styles, right? Um, that certain people are uh, I think I mentioned to you, I do a lot of work with extroverts and introverts, mm-hmm. and I break them into extroverts and introverts, and I, I say to the extroverts, look across the room. If you, if you know anybody across the room on the introvert side who's a woman, I want you to pay attention to my question. My question is, um, uh, who's ever heard of resting Mitch face?
0: Now, yeah. now notice
1: I'm saying Mitch face with an M. Yeah. As, as though there's some trope that introverted men deal with, which yeah. introverted men don't. There's n- nobody's policing introverted men's level of talkativeness. That's not yeah. happening. But I'm doing this juxtapositionally to remind them that. Extroversion and introversion is a thing, but on top of that is gender. On top of that is race, and I'm like, look across the room at women of color on the other side. Are you particularly if they're introverts? Are you ascribing them as, uh, you know, are you ascribing that they're that they have an attitude? Like, what do you think of when you think about that? Yeah. And can we disrupt that some? And so even though the the group hiring me may just want to talk about the Myers Briggs and personality type, which yeah. is great and it's fun and it's awesome, we can't do those things in a vacuum. It, it, we can't do those things in the vacuum because race is here. Gender is here. Gender identity is here. Sexuality is here. able Ableism is here. All the things are here. Yeah. And they're here with us wherever we go. Um, and so the other thing is I speak from my experience. I, I, it's not my job to talk about the black community in any way that's ascriptive or, tele, or as though I'm any kind of expert because I will never be. Or the Latine community, the differently-abled community. No, no, no. I can tell you about my experience as a white man. I can tell you about what I do and don't have to do. And I can just start there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so if we're wanting to increase our emotional intelligence, then Mm. where would be a good place to start?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, That's
0: such a broad topic. So maybe we should break that down a little bit and say, what what is emotional (sighs) intelligence?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, some of the key elements of emotional intelligence are listening, like deep listening. I'm married Mm. to a counselor. And if anybody has, has you know has a, a friend who's a counselor or has been to therapy which i highly recommend mm-hmm. you may have had a counselor say to you things like you, you say something and they say if i hear you i think you're saying this it's called yeah. re- rephrasing in the counseling world. Mm-hmm. you even if you're not a counselor you could do that if you're listening to someone you could rephrase and be like so if i get you you're, you're kind of saying this right right so so listening is part of it empathy is another part empathy is another part um, you know every one of us is has a difficult life. But, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Kelly Dixon says all of us have experienced trauma in some way. Yeah, And, and so when, when you know that honor that by, by extending empathy and grace first. Right. Um, and so if someone's late to a meeting rather than why are you late? Like, how about, are you okay? Is everything yeah. okay? Um, and so starting with those kinds of things, starting with deep listening and starting with empathy are two key elements uh, another one, and I'm doing a free webinar coming up at the end of uh, February uh, on emotional intelligence through type. through talking type. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Myers-Briggs is a great way to talk about type and to talk about and build emotional intelligence, right? Even just if I say, hey, introverts and extroverts, y'all are wired a little differently. Yeah. And y'all need to give each other some grace. For example, the first three years of my marriage, I constantly ask my wife, I'm an extrovert. Mm-hmm. I constantly ask my wife, are you okay? Are yeah. you mad? Is something yeah. wrong? Are you okay?
0: Uh-huh.
1: Why was I at, I was projecting extroversion onto her. For yeah. her si- silence is normal. And so I, once I started understanding type better, that builds emotional intelligence. I realized mm-hmm. that if an introvert's not talking as much as me, it doesn't mean something's wrong. Yeah. Now, if I have a friend who's an extrovert who gets quiet, that eh, probably is a signal that something <laughs> might be up, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's talking about type, and there's more to the Myers Briggs than just uh, just extrovert and introvert. But uh, it builds understanding about our differences in the workplace, in personal relationships, um, and and it's all designed to make you realize not everyone is like you and processes the world like you. Yeah. And once you start, once you start living with that every day, it the, the emotional intelligence starts building. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: When you go into these groups and you're talking to people about cultural competency and um, inclusion and diversity and things like that, and your audience is mostly people of color.
1: Yeah.
0: How, what are they saying that's different? What are they, what is their feedback? How are they receiving things? What, what would, what is like a common theme of people of color that they like want us to hear and we're not getting?
1: Yeah. So one of the things is sometimes it's sort of jarring but i think generally in a positive way to hear a white man talk about his whiteness and his maleness in real terms and and yeah. the ways that that my whiteness and my maleness um uh show up for me in my life mm-hmm. and, and so first of all i think that's a little bit jarring second of all um there's a you know i was i was raised by white people and and it's so interesting because my parents uh you know uh if they if we had a new neighbor in the neighborhood and they were like Oh well, you know that that family just moved in. Oh, and they're black,
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: would say, why are you whispering? <laughs> like, like you know. Uh, similarly, they'd be like, oh well, you know the woman who moved in down the street. I think she's gay, and I'm like, I yeah. know how to spell, yeah, and, yeah, and, and that's okay. And so I think that, um, and part of this is from my my workshops, but part of this is through other intercultural experiences I've I've had the privilege to to be a part of, is that um, white people, in my experience are acculturated for politeness first and realness second. Mm -hmm. And, um, and especially when talking about race or sexuality or religion or politics, politeness first. And that's a function of privilege that I can talk about race and, and make it have to be polite. Um, I've seen many white commentators, especially around MLK day talk about how Martin Luther King Jr. would never have, than part of the Black Lives Matter protest, and I'm like, clearly you have not read the letters from a Birmingham Jail. Clearly mm-hmm. you watched you watched sixty seconds of "I Have a Dream," felt war- <laughs> felt warm and felt felt warm and fuzzy about it. You know, yeah. children holding hands or whatever, and just stopped after that. I'm like,
0: yeah.
1: King was calling for reparations. King was yeah. calling for uh, uh, labor rights. King was calling for a war on poverty, and. And so, you know, the the warm and fuzzy one that I see every MLK day, I'm always I I'm constantly I'm like, dear fellow white people, here's a copy of it's eight pages, letters from a Birmingham jail. It'll take you 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You want to be a slightly better white person tomorrow than you were today? Don't post a cute meme of MLK with I have a dream. Instead, spend 10 minutes reading these six pages. Just just read the pages. Yeah. Um and so I think that um that there's a, there's a realness that white people don't do as much because we're acculturated into politeness and because society's built around us. In other words, uh, there's, there's not a reason to bring race up because white is the default when it comes to how Congress thinks and how corporations think and whatever. Yeah. It's the default. So why would we have to talk about it? Yeah. And so the, so. The the key is my fellow white people have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Have to. It's time. It's way past time mm-hmm. to be comfortable with discomfort. Um, yeah. The other hard part, though, when I'm working with a group that's that's racially diverse, where there are a lot of white people in the room and a lot of black people or Latinx people or Asian people, is do, doing what I call dual centering. And it's, it's hard work. And dual centering means... There's a level of basic one oh one stuff that white people need to catch up on.
0: Yeah.
1: And I don't want to waste the time of of the people of color in the room. Yeah. Cause they, they they've been through one oh course one oh one, course three oh one, course you know, they're yeah. they're in, in the grad school level of understanding how racism operates in the US. And even though my fellow white people invented and uphold racism, we always seem a little bit confused on how it works, right? It's like, yeah. how does racism actually operate? And I'm like, yeah, we, no, we made, we created it, yeah, and we and we keep it going, so we we know how it operates, but it's it's the discomfort thing. And so, um, as a, a part-time improv comedian, one of the things I have found is that in those those spaces, if I can do a little bit of the one hundred and one for the white people that need to catch up. Yeah. And simultaneously drop some coded language and breadcrumbs for uh, people of color in the room to keep them a little entertained, at least while I'm pulling up my fellow white people. Yeah. That helps bridge if I can. That helps bridge the gap a little bit. In other words, I, there's ver- there's almost nothing I could teach the black community about racism. I can't, I can't. That's not my job. I can't. Yeah. But but what I can do is maybe um, uh, show some solidarity. As I'm trying to bring my fellow white people up, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then oh, and sorry. And then engage those, those communities of color on other, uh, uh, privileged identities we might share, you know, uh, we might all be able-bodied. We might be all cisgendered. And I can say, if you share cisgenderedness with me, whether you're black, you're Latina, you're Asian, you're white. If you share that with me, I can, I can push, I can be like, Hey, my fellow cisgender people, let's talk about working on transphobia. And so that's one of the things where I'm not necessarily wasting the time of the people of color in the room because there are other ways that they may have privilege as well.
0: Right, that makes sense. What What are some of the one hundred and one things?
1: Oh my gosh, um, so just just uh, you know the real history of the U.S. Um, you know, history was written by you know what's the phrase? History is written by the victors. Um, that, for example, you know, people are like nine eleven was the was the worst. Um, Single loss of life event on U.S. soil. If if one thinks that, I would recommend that you read about the Tulsa, the Tulsa, Oklahoma bombings, mm-hmm. where the United States government bombed Black Wall Street. And if and if your listenership doesn't know what Black Wall Street is, there were two pretty prominent Black Wall Streets. One of them was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. where Black folks had had brought a lot of wealth together, and the other was in Durham, North Carolina, which is not too far from where I am, and. In the in the case of Tulsa, uh, the Black Wall Street was violently firebombed by by the United States. Read up on it. Go Google mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, in the case of Durham, it was a much more polite version of racism, where white legislature right white legislators uh, zoned out Black Wall Street by adding a highway here and changing a neighborhood's pur- zoning purposes there. And that yeah. kind of thing to sort of sort of politely enact racism, which doesn't make it any. I mean, it it didn't cost lives, but it cost livelihoods, right? Right. And so, reading up on on Black Wall Street, for example, um, reading the work of James Baldwin. James Baldwin, uh, who was a black man, there's actually going to be a, there's going to be a movie soon, or maybe it's already out, uh, featuring. Oh my gosh, um, he he's like he's like a, a award winning actor who I think is on uh, like one of the uh, one of the shows that features drag culture uh, who, and his name is escaping me right now, but um, it uh, uh, just goes to these. And so he's going to be playing James Baldwin. And if your audience doesn't know James Baldwin, mm-hmm. he, he lived in the U S and then moved to France and just, and came back and talked about his experience as a black person in the U S and then a black person in France and how radically different they were. Yeah. How and one of his famous quotes, and I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm going to paraphrase it cuz I'm not going to get it exactly mm. right but um he said something like we can disagree and still love each other unless our disagreement is rooted in your belief that I shouldn't exist. Yeah. And 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 it's like it's like wow. Wow. You know, I so many groups I work with, that, you know, when we do shared expectations, we're like, well, what do we expect of each other while we're doing the 2-hour workshop? Oh, we should respect each other. We should appreciate difference. We should we, we establish like, what do we expect of each other? And sometimes they'll say respect and I'll say, that's great. And sometimes they'll say honesty. And I'm like, yes, honesty. But you could say something that's honest and is anti-Semitic or racist yeah. or yeah. homophobic or transphobic. And that's honest. But I'm going to put a little asterisk and say honesty within the context of everyone in this room deserves human dignity, period. Yeah, And that's sort of what James Baldwin is saying. He's saying, we can disagree on school funding and where to build roads and other issues of government. Yeah. As long as that disagreement is not rooted in your belief that my people, whoever my people are, shouldn't exist. That's the, that's, that's the line, right? Yeah. And so as a facilitator, I want people to be honest, but then I also have to say within the context of, I believe every person in this room. And for that matter, every person is deserving of basic human dignity, so it's honest up until that point. And if you if you cross that threshold, we have to have a conversation about a bigger value than honesty. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And do you find when you're doing these workshops that people like these big light bulb moments come up like they've never even considered or their mind has never even gone in that direction and all of a sudden it's kind of blown because they didn't they didn't see it. They were just oblivious.
1: That's what I'm after every day. Every day. Every group I I visit, I want them to. Um, one of the things I do, and I just did this yesterday, um, FedEx, you know like FedEx Federal Express, yeah. um, I put their logo on the screen and I say, I'm gonna blow about a third of your brains right now. Uh, between one fourth and one third of every audience I'm in front of. I'm gonna say, look at the the negative space between the E and the X, the mm-hmm. negative space, and your your audience can Google this. There's in the negative space, there's an arrow. There's a white arrow which yeah. is moving moving forward a third to a fourth of every audience has never known that arrow was there. And it's very clever. But then once I show them, they're never going to unsee it. (laughs) Now when they get a package, they're going to see it. When they're on the highway and see a FedEx truck, they're going to see it. And so my goal is how can you uh, share with someone who's cisgender what it's like for a trans person to go to a public school where all the bathrooms aren't for them? or to go on a road trip where they have to go through West Virginia, where the bathroom laws are X, Y, Z. Or, you know, the, the, uh, you know, if I'm in a room giving a speech, I sometimes ask the question, how might you have gotten in here if you needed hardware to get into the room, i.e. a wheelchair? How might you have entered this room? And, you know, and so even just asking that question, just asking and just saying, "I I didn't need hardware to get in this room. I'm very thankful. I did not need hardware to get in this room. And some people might. And, and that I, I, there were, there was a minute I did not have to spend entering this room today, looking for a route that had a ramp. There was, I, I, and so if I think about every room I've ever walked in, how many minutes do I have friend? How many minutes do I have to think about the disabled and differently abled communities? Yeah. You know? And so my goal is to help everyone, uh, uh, perceive something they've never perceived before. Because once you've, once you've seen the, the little arrow in the FedEx logo, there's no one seeing it. There's no unseeing it. And once you've been invited to think, oh, as I walked into this convention hall or this business office, was there an all gender restroom? Was, is there a ramp? Uh, You know, what are the symbols here that celebrate white supremacy? Like, like, is this, is this room named after someone who, you know, owned enslaved people, right? Like, so, but just asking those questions and drawing some attention. And then the key is, once you start doing it, practice it practice it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about your fraternity experience because
1: <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs>
0: it's so awesome yeah. and so unusual and uh so cool.
1: Yeah, so I I was um you know, uh, I saw images of fraternities in in movies and such and when I was in college I had no interest in that in that kind of thing. Um and then later in life um, I was a grown, grown up in my 30s, and I had, uh, you know, had had was a professional, and whatnot. And I was approached um, by a fellow administrator, a guy named Jamar. And um, at the time, I should tell you that I was the advisor for the largest group of Black students on campus. Um, we, we it was called the Council for Cultural Awareness, and we did all our, our job was to provide entertainment for students of color on campus. That was our job, and so the students led it. I was the advisor. I was there to help them with contracts and help them with learning how to promote events and learning how to run events and facilitate things. So it was step shows and it was concerts and it was spades tournaments and it was fashion shows and all of these different things, um, Most mostly geared towards black students. Yeah. And and it would take me a solid year or two with the students involved to build trust. And rightfully so. I mean, I, I, you know when I think about the history of my fellow white men, we yeah. haven't done a lot to earn trust. And so it would take me a, a while to earn trust. So this this guy Jamar, who was a fellow administrator of mine, approached me and said, "I want to start a graduate chapter of of this historically black fraternity." And I said, uh, "Well, first he just said I want to start a chapter," and I said, "Oh, so you want to meet my students?" He goes, "No, no, no, I want to start a graduate chapter, and I want you to pledge it." Mm-hmm. And I said, "I said, um, well, first of all, and I'm pointing at my face. I'm like, did you catch that? I, I'm I'm going to be white the rest of my life. Like, this spoilers. Like, it's I'm terminally Caucasian. Like, it's it's yeah. forevermore, right?" I said, first of all, I'm white. And I said, second of all, I've got two graduate degrees and a mortgage and, and some children. I, I don't know that I'm going to pledge something at this point in all my right. life. And the two things he said really got my attention. One was he said, well, I'm doing a program for uh, boys of color at the local elementary school to help them get excited about college. And I want you to help me with that program, whether or not you pledge this fraternity. I want you to help me with that. I said, OK, now you've got my attention because that's like real legit good work and then he said and i want to sit down with you and your wife because this is a family decision and i'm like oh you just made my inner feminist and my inner womanist very happy that <laughs> that like that you re- because as much misogyny yeah. and toxic masculinity as there is in the fraternity world you said i want to sit down with you and your wife i'm like okay yeah so i took i took a leap of faith and i thought to myself as i was considering it i thought what might this help me build trust with my students. Might if I stepped out of my comfort zone a little bit, might this help build some trust? Yeah. And and sure enough it, it did. It did. And um now at the time I was in this tiny little mountain community where the whole chapter was me and and Jamar. That was it. Um uh, little did I know I was going to move uh to a, a much larger metro area of about 1.8 million people, where the Divine Nine as it's known, the Divine Nine are the nine largest historically black sororities and fraternities. Kamala Harris, for example is a member of the first historically black sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Mm. Um, And so, uh, but the Divine Nine are the nine largest of these, these historic groups. And so in my new community, the Divine Nine is everywhere. I mean, Mm. I just marched in two MLK parades, uh, one on Saturday and one on uh, Monday with members of the Divine Nine and, you know, out in force in the cold um, uh, marching to celebrate MLK. And again, celebrate when I'm marching with the members of the Divine Nine, which again, I'm, the only white person there in those instances i have great confidence that when they are marching to honor king's legacy that it's the whole legacy not just the warm fuzzy one that my fellow white people tend to celebrate once a year with a meme right Mm -hmm. um and so uh it's really it's really uh, encouraging and empowering and and you know it my my graduate chapter you know we have guys who went to segregated high schools some of the guys are old enough that 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 their high schools were segregated, and some of them are so young that um, that they have to be reminded that the old guys were in segregated high schools, right? Um, and and we're committed to just doing work in the community, you know. Yeah. Mm.
0: And did you feel like they all embraced you, or was there a little bit of resistance there? Or because you were there from the beginning, it's different.
1: It, it's it's interesting. I I don't. It's hard to tell. It's hard to know. But the bottom line is, I have to own my whiteness every time. I have to yeah. recognize that that my whiteness can be supportive and can be disruptive, and sometimes it's both.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And I have to be honest with myself, and I have to be humble about it. I have to recognize that even though the the member of the fraternity who originally approached me, kind of like the gospel choir thing, even though yeah. I was invited in, does that mean that every single person would invite me in? And so my goal is to to show up in a way that's worthy of inviting. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I want to show up in a way that's worthy of being invited. And, and then too, you know, but then there's another dynamic too, which is, you know, the internalized racism, right? The, the, the idea that, um, you know, white people often don't show up in the black community because we don't have to. And that's on some level, there might be some appreciation too. Like this white guy doesn't have to do any of this. Like, what? yeah, he, there's, no, there's no, no work we're doing is going to help quote unquote help his people, so to speak. Right. Um, and so I think on some level, sometimes there's an appreciation that I, I don't always sense in the moment or feel, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and then other times maybe some skepticism and, and, and that's, that's, I have to realize that that skepticism is appropriate and fair Yeah. <laughs> that, that again, the track record of my people is deserving of skepticism from, from all communities of color. Right. Yeah. I mean, my people have colonized three quarters of the half of the globe or more. Right. And so, um, I have to, I I have to keep that knowledge everywhere I go, and be ready to to work hard to build trust. And it yeah. and it it might not always happen. And I have to be okay with that too. You know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I shared this with you a little bit before that um, when I was in Arizona, I worked on the Gila River Indian Reservation. And um, I was a social worker and I really intentionally chose to go on the Indian Reservation because I thought it would be like a really cool, unique experience. Um, And so it was a 30 mile trek every day to work. I went into the reservation and um, it took the... I think it took the patients six months before they would speak to me and the staff, it took them a year. They had a native American social worker in there before me, all of the staff were native American, all the patients were native American and there was a few Hispanic. And when I came in, literally, um, I would sit down in front of somebody's dialysis chair and they they're stuck in the chair they can't get out of their chair and they would turn their whole body away from me. And they just didn't want to have anything to do with me. Um, in it, on the flip side was I was really interested in Native American culture. I became friends with one of the guys um, there and then his brother and his brother was the Sundance chief. And I really was like really, really interested. He invited me to come into the sweat lodges. And that was the uh, same thing. I was kind of one of the first white people. Um it wasn't super well received because again, it was that sacred space and I was coming in, but I really came in with this intention of wanting to learn and understand. I thought everything was so cool. There was so much I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, but it did flip. It did flip where they embraced me and they brought me in and they loved me and it was like tears when I left after three years. Um, but it it took a while for me to like wiggle my way in, and it was it was just that persistence and that wanting to understand their culture that I think shifted oh. things for me. But it, it took some time and I get it. I, it, I, it
1: does. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that story because it takes it takes wanting to understand their culture. And it also takes, I think, checking our own culture. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. you know, um, I, I uh, at one of the fraternity events, you know, um, our president, you know, we were supposed to be there at 11 a.m. for the parade and I'm texting him at 1045. I might be five minutes late. And later when I got to the event, we had an hour of buffer time before the parade started. And I said, I said, I said, look, man, you know, as the white guy in the chapter, you know that I'm obsessed with being on time, that that's a distinctly white thing, right? That like, and so, so like, I I appreciate what you're saying because it's like a, a wanting to understand another culture. And then part of it is realizing some of how I just live my life is its own culture. And how can I try to zoom out from that? How can I try to decolonize my thought and go, what are the things I do that are the whitest things I do, right? Yeah. Um, so I posted recently on social media. I said, I- I'm I'm white, but I'm not let my dog lick my mouth white. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Gross. Yes. <laughs> so, right. Right. And so, you know, um, I'm not like uh, my dog has a sweater and I drink soy lattes white. Right. Yes. So there's there's there was this great thing on Twitter about 10 years, nine years ago called Black People Ask White People Anything and White People Ask Black People Anything. And it was the coolest thing ever. And I'm not even really big on Twitter, uh, but I saw some of these things. And like one of them was like a black person saying, dear white people, why did you colonize half the planet searching for spices and you don't use spices on your food? Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, I'm like <laughs> yeah. And so I think what you're saying is, you know, the as, as a white person or as a person with any kind of privilege, if you're seeking to understand another culture, Part of the other part of that bargain that I think is important is how do you understand your end of that culture, your, your sort of up, the, the flip side of that, that is your culture. And how do you try to suspend it a little bit? Or how do you try to interrogate it or challenge it in your mind? Like, Oh, am I doing this? Cause I'm a, cause I'm white. Is this, a, is this a distinctly white thing? Yeah. Right? And, and because. Whiteness is sort of because of the way the US is built is just the norm. And then everything else, any minoritized group is the exception. Yeah. But but what if I did go? Why why are my people so obsessed with being on time? Where did that come from? Right. It mm-hmm. tra- trains. I think it came from trains. Yeah. Um and, and white people developing train technology or whatever. And so we're like, Well, we better get stopwatches and uh, like my dad's German, so the Germans are extra. Yeah, yeah, we need to be on time, yeah. You know. And so so like, you know, there's there's under cultural humility is what we call it, but it's yeah. going it's going my whole life is soaked in culture and until I realize that my life is part of cultures and can try and probably fail for a while to zoom out from that, that's part of what it takes to yeah. to more more fully enter an intercultural space owning yeah. my my maleness, owning my whiteness, owning like when I'm in a dark parking lot at night, and I see a woman in the parking lot and we're the only two people. I walk away. I walk away because I understand on some level that she probably all of her life has been told, keep your keys in your hands because, yeah. you know, and and I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to walk the opposite direction. I'm going to wait two minutes for her to get to her car. Then I will walk to my car. Yeah. Is that going to take me two extra minutes? Sure. Has she spent a minute in every dark parking lot she's ever been in her whole life digging out her keys? Yes. So do I owe that time back? Yes, I do. Yeah. And so me owning my maleness is, is part of it. Me owning my whiteness, me owning my cisgenderedness is part of it. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's the key. And and clearly that community, I think probably recognized that you were owning your own stuff, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not in, in the same words I'm talking about, but right. in a way that was like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Well now, now there's tears, right? And so that's a,
0: yeah. an
1: important part for anybody who has privilege is to recognize that, You have cultures that are part. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think the thing that I learned with the Native American, um, at least that tribe that I was working with was Mm. um, there was such incidents of diabetes. Um, It was so it was so bad. And then and, and initially I was like, oh, my gosh, their diet is so bad. And then I look at it. I'm like, we took all their land. They don't have any land. The land they have is crap. They can't grow stuff on it. The closest door really is like 30 minutes away. It's kind of outside of their price budget. Not only that, the trek. And then I would say so many of them sat on their couch at night and they were worried like the bullets were going to come through the window. And sometimes they would watch TV on the floor. And all of those, I would say 95% of my patients had lost children. Yeah. And when I say lost children, it was something violent. Like it was like they got run over by a tractor or they got yeah. hit in a in a car. Like it was all of these pretty violent things and, um, nothing was simple about, about their existence. And not only that, they were always having to fight for every little piece of land or every little piece of service that they, they needed. Um, and so, yeah, of course, they did trust me as a white girl coming in, I was pretty young and, and, you know, and, um, and I didn't understand the level of hardship that they deal with every single day, just resources, just all resources, and then um, mm-hmm. the oppression and being stuck on that horrible land.
1: It's, it's huge. And I mean, you know, a few things you said that, that resonate with me. One of them is about, about socioeconomic privilege, right? Um, the community where I live, I can get to, I'm going to say, six different grocery stores within 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Six different grocery stores within 10 minutes. If I drive across the red line and sort of your listeners um, who remember I said the thing about reading James Baldwin. Another thing is look at the history of redlining. There's a great video. Um, Adam ruins everything. He's a comedian and it was a series on TBS and the web. Adam ruins everything. Redlining edition. Look it up. It also features Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a a Pulitzer prize winning writer uh, talking about redlining, but redlining was when formal segregation ended.
0: Yeah.
1: Banks still had maps and they had a red line. And on one side of the red line were good mortgage, uh, uh, bets. And on the other side of the, (laughs) <laughs> I, were bad mortgage bets uh, and coincidentally the the risky mortgage bets were on, in the black neighborhoods and the, the good yeah. mortgage bets were in the white neighborhood when I go across what was the historic red line in my city uh, suddenly on the other side of the red line I think the whole city over there I think there's three grocery stores and on my side of the red line I'm going to guess probably 35 grocery stores yeah. And it's it's shocking. And so so being poor is expensive. And so because the the opportunity cost, the again, think of every time I go to the grocery store, I don't have to think about a one hour round trip. I don't have to think about it. Yeah. And there are communities for every time they want to go to a grocery store, they've gotta think they've gotta factor in an hour round trip. What could you how could you otherwise use an hour to earn money? How could you otherwise use an hour to build your community up? How could you otherwise use that hour?
0: Yeah. And
1: so, um, and then two, with the Native community, you know, this is something that, that I had to learn over time, um, is that, is that the, the Native community, even though in the U.S., they have been racialized. In other words, you'll see checklists where it's like, Oh, what's your race? Are you black? Are you Latino? Are you Native American?
0: Mm-hmm. Native
1: Americans, uh, there, there is, A lot of of members of the Native American community are like, we are not a race. We are sovereign nations. Yeah. And you're calling us a race because that's what white people have decided to do because y'all like to label things. But we are a sovereign nation with national sovereignty that you're violating treaties on right now. And so there's a recasting to me. Um, Some groups I go to do what's called a land acknowledgement. Where And I would encourage your listeners to get on Google, and particularly if you're not native, um, uh, to Google, whose land are you on? Yeah, Whose land are you on? I, I live on the ancestral home of the Catawba. Um, and east of me is the ancestral and, and current home of the Cherokee. Um, the In North Carolina, we also have the Suan. We have the Lumbee as well. And the Lumbee are, are a fascinating nation because uh, uh, freed Africans – and native folks uh, joined to get be- it. There, there were there was a part of the black diaspora ended up within this nation as well. Um, and so, um, understanding whose land whose land am I on? And yeah. but more important than that, the land acknowledgement. Sometimes I'm at a conference and somebody will say, "Well, now that we're in Toronto, I want to acknowledge that this is the ancestral home of this nation or this tribe." But the other piece of the puzzle is, besides just putting in a, a slide on your slideshow and saying, "I acknowledge this," yeah, how can you live as an uninvited guest? How can we live as uninvited guests right um and and i realized that catawba never invited me here they didn't i was yeah. not invited yeah um and so how can i live as an uninvited guest who whose presence came with violence you know
0: yeah yeah so what are it like on an individual level if we work with say we're um a white male or female, we work Uh with people of color. Yeah. We want to evolve those relationships. Um, But there's a little, there's a few barriers that we need to cross in order to do that. How, like what advice do you have? Like, how do we go about doing that? What's the best way to do that? What are some things that we don't want to do that are like really offensive? Um, You know, that we want to avoid where we, we really go in with the best of intentions yeah. And we want to break down those barriers, but we don't know where to start. We don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because um, uh, I want to challenge your question a little bit in a good way, I think. But sometimes I have clients that that I literally had a, a client try to hire me uh, to do a two hour session on what to not say. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, well, well, hold on. Instead of what to not say, what if we talked about how to understand our own stuff, right? And, and and so uh, so half of yeah. your question, I think, is amazing. And the other half, I think, can come from the first. But when it's asked by itself, it's yeah. more like, I don't want to offend anybody. And it goes back to this white politeness thing, right? Yeah. And so one of the things is – well, two, two, two ideas I'll share with you. One is own your own whiteness, right? Explore – get ready to laugh at yourself. Think yeah. about the things that you do that are the most white ever. As a matter of fact, that video I mentioned, the redlining edition yeah. one, it opens. It's, it's one of the guys is a comedian, and it opens, and he's talking to this guy, and he's in his house, and he goes, "This is a very white neighborhood," and the owner of the house is like, "This isn't a white neighborhood." And he opens the blinds and looks out, and there's literally a woman with a, a latte yeah. with with a dog, <laughs> dog. with a sweater <laughs> with a a canvas NPR tote bag full of kale, and I'm like, oh, yeah. "That is all the white tropes on top of each other." Right? Yeah, and so for one, get. Get comfortable laughing at whiteness, get mm-hmm. comfortable, and then get comfortable with the idea that that as a white person, you're not owed trust. You're not owed trust. Yeah. Start there. I am not owed trust by anybody, As uh, anybody who's not white. I'm not owed any trust by them. So that takes some humility. And then the humor side, be ready to laugh at why white people do X, Y, Z. Yeah. Starting with those two internal processes and practicing those on a daily basis is is part one, I think which is, is understanding that because most of us sort of act like we're owed stuff, right? I mean, the trope of the Karen, right, yeah. is quintessentially the person who feels like they're owed something and wants to speak to the manager right now, right? Yes. And so, so first of all, understanding that you're not owed anything, particularly to people who have less power in society than you. Um, and then two, laugh at yourself, laugh at your fellow white people. And yeah. and, and, and PS, do it to their face. Like, like, in other words. Um, and this is something that, again, huge privilege on my part and huge that that being a member of a historically black fraternity, there are moments few and far between. But I treasure these moments where for half a second, it's as though they've forgotten a white person's in the room. yeah, And I, I get to hear their white person impressions, which is the best thing. I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. Right. Because we're because we're all nerds. We're all pretty uptight. Right. And yeah. so so I get to hear about whiteness from outside of whiteness and and that's again a distinct distinct privilege that I I'm very very thankful for but to to think about your whiteness from outside to try to think about it from outside if you study if you go abroad um, that that can be helpful as well and yeah. I know you, you've been around the world some and, and going around yeah. the world can remind you when people get back to the United States and then get a soda at a restaurant they're like oh my gosh how this is this is 50 ounces of soda and they call this a small right? The portion sizes yeah. when you go from, uh, from abroad to domestic. Um, but get ready to laugh and then also remind yourself that, that you're not, you're not owed, you know, you're not yeah. owed anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great place to start. And there was a second thought that, that just escaped my mind, but what were you talking about? You are talking about what to say, what things we, to bridge the gap, what things we should avoid saying. Oh, one thing is if there are phrases that you think might be racist, Google them. Yeah. Google them. Spend what I call white people time and Google them. Um, there's a phrase I used to love, uh, called cake. It was cakewalk. And if something was easy, I'm like, oh, that's a cakewalk. Yeah. And then I learned the history of the cakewalk. Mm. And now I don't use that phrase. anymore. And, um, you know, uh, but then I, at some point somebody said, well, picnic, is that, is that word racist? So I looked it up. It's actually not. Yeah, and so, okay. but I took some time to go check on these things. Right. Yeah. Um, eeny, meeny, miny, mo racist i did not, not know that for yeah. 35 40 years of my life and then i knew and then i moved on and so i think that. oh that was my second thought is as a white person some people talk about white fragility right yeah white fragility is if i go in somewhere and i'm in a room and it's a lot of black people and i i've never heard that eeny meeny miny mo has racist roots and i'm trying right. to pick who's gonna go, who's going to get the soda for the party, the office party. And I go, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. And my black colleagues go, right. And then somebody gracefully says, you you know, that has a racist history. And then I get in the middle of the room and go, I didn't know. Oh my gosh. And I start crying in the middle of the room and like, you know, making it all about me and my mistake.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Instead of being like, oh, dang it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to use that phrase anymore. Thank you for letting me know. Appreciate, yeah. I appreciate that time that you just gave me. <laughs> the unpaid for labor that you just gave me to tell me that this phrase is racist. And and I'm, I'm going to repay that labor by not using that phrase in the future. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. And not take the root, not make it all about me all of a sudden, right. Not make it about right. the white, the white tears. And that takes strength. It takes humility. It takes yeah. um, because none of us like to feel embarrassed.
0: Right. None yeah. of us like
1: to feel embarrassed. And guess what y'all? It's time to get comfortable feeling embarrassed. It's yeah. time. It is time.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that helped me the most was I, I did. I took two years. I mean, talk about privilege. I took two years. I traveled the world. I, I went with a backpack on a really low budget. Um, but one of the things that I did was I, I went to uh, what what are labeled third world countries? Sure, sure. Um, and. I went to a lot of different countries and I made sure that I wasn't kind of hanging out with a bunch of white people. I really wanted to get in meshed into the culture, but I read the culture shock series, which is, uh, these books that kind of tell you the do's and don'ts of the different cultures so that you don't offend people and that you're not, you know, like in Asia, you don't want to point your feet at people. You don't want to touch people on the head. You don't want to walk around with your shoulders, um, showing and, and just like little, like in India, you, you know, you you want to, Take things with your right hand. And like, there's just little things that are really, really important in those cultures. Um, and so I think, like, if people do travel, it is worth kind of looking at the taboo things. Like, what are the things that might be everyday things for us that can be incredibly offensive to other people? And just kind right. of understanding that culture. We're going into another culture. We're yeah. like, same thing. I'm going onto the Indian reservation. That's not my culture. It's my job to learn what I can. So that I don't offend. And if I do write, I can own it. and take accountability right. there.
1: Right. Uh, so so I'm a big Disney World fan. And one wouldn't think that Disney World would have anything to weigh in on, on what you just said. But if you ever visit Disney World, yeah. and if you ever ask a Disney cast member for directions, they point like this with two fingers. Because in many cultures, particularly in the Middle East, pointing with one finger is like giving the middle finger is mm-hmm. here. Right. Uh, in, in in India, and if you spent some time in India, you probably yeah. know that that in the U.S. if you disagree with something, you go like this.
0: Same, <laughs> s- so
1: s- 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 same in India for disagreement, but for yeah. agree for for agreement in yeah. much of the Western Hemisphere, agreement is this. Yes,
0: yes. but
1: agreement in India is this. Yes, it's the side to side, right? Um, and so took understanding me some time. <laughs> that it 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 takes it because it's so instinctive, right? So you know, um, yeah. but understanding you know that the hand on the heart. Uh, in some more traditional Arab uh, spaces and, and the different things. And, and, but, but like you said, pick up a book, read about it. some. if someone from another culture has given you time to share something about that culture, thank them for that because they didn't have to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, One of the reasons I do what I do is because uh, growing up, I was exhausted by seeing my black classmates asked to teach everyone about racism.
0: I was just going to ask you about that.
1: Yeah. Or my gay classmates being mm-hmm. asked to teach everybody about homophobia or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, my people invented homophobia and racism and misogyny and, and, and so we need to be active in the uninvented. Right. Yeah. And so we need, I need to be teaching my fellow white people about these things so that, so that black people aren't wasting their time and Latin A people aren't wasting their time and the trans community is not wasting their time because they got to navigate a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so for, for, so. I got to work on on people that share privilege with me. Now again, it's layers because when I say the black community, it's not as though the black community is not full of cisgender people and trans people, able-bodied people and non-able-bodied people. So I I meet people in the black community with cisness often that we share cisgenderness together, and right. we can have a conversation about breaking down transphobia and you know um, trans oppression and things like that. And I might share so so there's different things that we share, and most people I can meet with some form of privilege like there's some privilege we share and i can meet them there yeah and we and we can work together on addressing whatever those isms are that we that we don't have to deal with right yeah and so even though i start with race because i think race is, is fundamental there's so much more that makes us us um yeah. where where we can find common ground you know yeah
0: yeah Ah, oh, this has been so good i feel like i could talk to you forever <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks thanks yeah
0: <laughs> So how do, what, tell people what you're up to, how people can reach out to you, how businesses can hire you and um, connect with you.
1: Yeah. AdaptiveChallengeConsulting.com uh, is our website. Uh, we're also very active on LinkedIn and Facebook. And again, Adaptive Challenge Consulting in both of those spaces. Uh, my name is Alan Mueller, A-L-A-N. And I'm sure it'll be linked Mueller, like the spaghetti in the grocery store. Um, and so feel free to connect with me on, on Dan or Facebook. Um, and then also... You know, one thing I'll mention is, you know, if I'm going to ever be a white person that that has a company that does EDI work, if I'm not bringing along with me and compensating people of color for the work that they do, yeah. then, I'm fa- then I'm failing at what I'm doing. Then I'm just capitalizing on work that's not mine. Uh, and I've had amazing, amazing, in particular for me, Black elders and Black queer elders who have taken much more time with me than I deserve to teach me up. Mm-hmm. And I owe it to them to pay it forward to, um, to the next generation, uh, of folks of color. And so my, my consulting team, I think on my consulting team, I, have, I think I only have one other white person at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, my team is amazing as well. So, so if you're thinking about, ooh, I'd like to hire this Allen guy. You know what? I've got, uh, four, also five other amazing people as well, um, who, who have a lot to offer. Um, and so, uh, you know, for me, um, any time, any t- any space I'm in, I want to make space for them as well. But Adaptive dot com is where you can find us.
0: Yeah. Well, mm. thank you, Alan. I really appreciate you and your time and your work. And um, and uh, it was so lovely chatting with you today.
1: Thanks for the conversation. It was great. I appreciate you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkyyoga.com, dot acom Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.